to episode eight of Mosif's APIs over IPA's podcast network. I'm Derek Gilling, your host today and the CEO of Mosif, the API analytics platform. Joining me is Tyler Jewell, the managing director at Dell Technology Capital. Uh, before he was the CEO of API management platform company, WSO2. As an investor, he's placed almost $150 million over DevOps companies and is very focused on developer first companies out here. Happy to have you here today. Uh, good afternoon, Derek. Cool. Well, uh, just to kick things off, we'd love to hear your story from, you know, starting off as CEO of uh, WSO2 to managing director at Dell Capital. Yeah, uh, you know, I started in the software industry about 25 years ago uh, as an engineer and then uh, moved into product um, at, at some large publicly traded companies, uh, BEA and Quest Software. Um, and, you know, along the way, uh, I, I got opportunities to run companies as well. You know, you do the, the big company leadership thing and then, then you have some ideas and you go off and do, do some startups. Um, I was CEO of a small media company that had been started by Ed Roman um, and then eventually got bought by Tech Target. That was like in 2004. Um, and then after my, you know, second stint at a large uh, publicly traded company, I, I started my own uh, company in 2011 called Code Envy. Uh, Code Envy was a cloud IDE, you know, cloud developer workspace um, at a time when it was not not really a well-regarded category. Um, and we grew that business over five years. That was that was acquired by Red Hat. Um, and uh, and one of the investments I had made in 2009 was WSO2. I had been on the board uh, for a number of years, uh, and that that company had grown up. Uh, pretty nicely, and, and the founders asked me to come, uh, you know, become their CEO. Uh, so I took over the reins and uh, was CEO for a few years. Um, and that company's at scale, profitable, uh, 600 over 600 employees now around the world um, on that front. One of the largest open source companies um, uh, by revenues. Uh, and you know, all along the way, I'd been doing investments either as an angel. Um, or uh, as a VC, you know, been invited to, to participate. And it made about a dozen investments, all in developer-related businesses, um, uh, Sauce Labs, WSO2, CodeNV, InfoQ, Cloudant, um, App Harbor, Zero Turnaround, a bunch of others as well. And, uh, you know, and then um, Dell came knocking. They were, they were a really, really well-regarded VC unit, um, they they'd been looking to expand the partnership. They were looking for somebody who you know had expertise in um, enterprise infrastructure, had been an operator, and had investment experience. And so it was it was just a great combination, and then just a great group of people. So I, I decided to make the leap here on that front. Awesome! No, super awesome to see uh, having that uh, operator experience along with the investing side, even from your personal angel investing. Uh, you know, we've been noticing that you, you know, pushed out this new developer-led landscape back in 2020. Uh, you know, what was the motivation behind that? And, and can you share some of those insights? Yeah, um, so uh, I think early on in my career 20 years ago, uh, when I was, you know, starting to work on developer tools or in and around developer businesses, the, the common refrain was that there's no money to be made in, in <laughs> developer-oriented businesses. Uh, I, I still think that that's probably a common, a common attitude that a lot of people have about it. Um, and so I've I've always been on you know this this march towards you know getting getting the broader investment business um, and technology ecosystem to have a stronger appreciation for the value that uh, developers and developer based businesses can bring uh, to the table, um, 
And, you know, in order to do that, I think that uh, a lot of people are just uh, don't recognize how, how big that market space is. And so um, as part of my just kind of daily reading routine, I've been slowly collecting all the products, um, at least commercial-based products that, um, that I think fit somewhere into this landscape that were developer-led or developer-influenced. And, and I, I've been building that up for over a decade. And, and I finally said, hey, you know, might as well publish it. And, um, and I, be, I bet you people would, you know, get a lot of value in seeing this, this just the raw number of companies and products uh, that covered this ecosystem. And it turns out it's about 1,200 products, um, commercial-based products that generate revenue in some form or fashion. Um, most of those are probably across 900 or so companies, um, all of which have raised venture capital or, you know, in some cases, bootstrapped themselves. Um, and, and it's generating almost, you know, all those products together are about $40 billion in annualized recurring revenues. And so if you think about all those businesses that were either started by a developer um, or they make products bought by developers or, you know, heavily used by developers, you know, the, the just the raw influence of the developer ecosystem is really significant, you know, and, and it, you know, it, it may now account for well over a trillion dollars of, of value out in the marketplace. Um, so, so it was just a, it was just an exercise to get, get the rest of the ecosystem to see the world, you know, and, and have a positive affiliation to it the way I have. Oh, oh over, over a half a trillion dollars in value. That's uh, quite a bit, I guess, when we look at Twilio and, uh, what are they like, uh, half a billion or sorry, half a trillion dollars, you know, uh, or sorry, half a billion dollars in 2015. It was crazy yeah, to see right. that, that growth. Yeah, Not half a trillion, true. that would be a little bit different, but <laughs> Cool. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, looking at founders, you know, is there anything that you notice different in terms of developer first companies versus a more uh, traditional sales led traditional company? Yeah, well, you know, develop, developer led businesses are almost always started by engineer, you know, um, uh, you know, that engineer may or may not have commercial commercialization experience, go to market experience. Um, uh, so, so you have to work a little bit more to, you know, help them, uh, build, build the team that that's going to be able to balance out the strengths that they, that they bring. Um, now what's interesting is that a lot of, a lot of developers, uh, that are starting businesses today, they may not have commercialization experience, but they do have, um, open source maintenance, um, experience, you know, and a lot of open, the process of, you know, maintaining and growing a community in and around an open source project is a lot like the, very similar to the skills necessary in building out a commercial, commercial organization as well on that front. Um, so, so the, you know, the, the balance is increasingly there on that front. Um, uh, and, you know, that's kind of the biggest, the, the biggest components of what, of what you see. Does that mean you think about uh, acquisition and go-to-market strategy differently when you look at these uh, different companies, or is it um, roughly the same metrics like MRR and 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 sales funnel? Or it, 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 you, you look at um, you look at uh, the, the the metrics that are appropriate for a business, or depends upon the type of business that they're building. So not not all businesses are the same, you know. So if they're if the developer is building a cloud-based business, um, yeah, you might you might work with SaaS metrics on, on that front. Um, but if it's a open source business or an open core business, you know, there might be, there might be other metrics that, that are so much SaaS metrics, but related to, um, you know, classic ARR, you know, quota coverage, um, you know, cost, cost of customer acquisitions, things, things of those natures that are a little bit more oriented to that on-prem sale, along with, along with recognizing that growth of the open source is, is the top of the funnel. And so there's, there's a whole series of DevRel, um, developer relationship metrics that you've got to incorporate as well on that front.
Definitely. And when we look at, you know, the consumer world, you know, the, the Hotmail hack where it's like sent from Hotmail, you know, sent from my iPhone, any cool yeah. hacks that you've seen within the developer landscape that is quite unique? In, in terms of uh, go-to-market yeah. acquisition as a hack, um, you know, I don't, I don't really think there's anything you can do to hack. What I, but what I, I, <laughs> I do, what I will say is that regardless of whether it's a developer-focused business or anything else in the enterprise software space, a lot of, a lot of the difference between the companies that, that are successful and those that aren't is the ability to network and hustle um, uh, on, on behalf of the founders. You know, so whether it's networking with amazing engineering talent or networking to potentially acquire early customers um, or networking on a business development front, you know, th those founders who, um, uh, you know, really invest into continuously building relationships have a tendency to perform better than those that obsess about just product or just obsess about hiring their people and, and, and kind of um, uh, have a little bit of a, uh, an inwardly view. Well, that's a really good point. You know, it's easy to get buried into product itself and think about developer experience, but, you know, people are still people, even if you're a developer. So how do you maintain those relationships and uh, push forward? It's always important, right? Yeah, and I, I think that, um, uh, you know, this, it's very rare for somebody to get inbound interest on something, you know, in, in, innovation and interest in what you're doing tends to come from people um, just knocking on a lot of doors and sharing what they're doing and then finding, um, you know, finding people who share the same values. And, and people who share the same values have a way of gravitating towards each other, but then you've got to nurture that and then grow that and grow that. And next thing you know, you, you've actually got a legitimate business there on that front. But that, that, basic, that basic exercise is, is something that founders have to, they have to, that's a skill they have to learn if they don't have it. Definitely. And when you think about things like developer experience and being empathetic towards developers, how do you actually get it right? You know, sometimes we see companies that just get it somehow. There's another company yeah. that, you know, it's not really developer first. The thing about you know developer experience is um, it, it all comes down to engagement and loyalty from the developers, and um, developers will give you engagement and loyalty if you give them an authentic experience, and and so everybody goes okay well what's an authentic developer experience and the thing is is it's it's it, there's no there's no way to measure that um, there's no it's not scientific it's it's part art it's part science, um, but uh, what what I can tell you is that developers know right away when something isn't authentic. Um, and, and I, you know, and I've tried to do my best guess at, at kind of describing what, what makes something authentic and, and it's any, it's any sort of, you know, solution that blends itself into an existing developer workflow. So if you have, if you have a developer and there's something that they're doing on a regular basis, you know, while they're, while they're writing code or other, another part of the tasks that they've got to do, um, if there's a way for you to just transparently blend that in to that. Um, and then still deliver your solution through that without forcing them to learn something else. That that tends to be a great authentic experience, and then that drives a lot of value. And we saw that with Heroku. You know, Heroku was just a Git push. You know, so you already you know you already were using Git, and so it just blended into that. We saw it with SNCC. You know, SNCC. You still do a pull request. You know, you don't have to change that. But SNCC started adding a lot of you know static analysis, AppSec testing capabilities. Um, you know. Even to a lesser degree, VS Code. VS Code made the plugin model just so transparent that you know that you don't even have to know that you're installing plugins. You know, it just kind of starts adding these values as as you start writing code because it can it can infer what you want from that. So these are those are like great examples of of how engineers were really thoughtful about not not bending not bending the existing experience too much and adding value at the same time. 
Funny enough, I was just going to ask, how do you actually measure this developer experience? And, and, and you're right, it's hard to measure. Um, is there any uh, maybe high level uh, things that you can be looking at just to get a sense or a pulse of developer experience? Um, anything you could, I mean, um, look, there's the obvious things of which projects are getting more contributors, which projects are getting more downloads and stuff like that. I think that's a, that's a proxy, you know, maybe an early indicator that there's a great developer experience there. But, but frankly, the thing that I look for is um, uh, a certain amount of joy you, you can tell, like if you're a developer and you hang out and just spend 20 minutes with a developer talking about a certain technology, you know, there are those things that developers talk about scientifically and then there's those things that they talk about emotionally. You know, you're looking for the emotional ones. The Vim versus Emacs. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that, that's a whole different, that's a whole different, you know, dis discussion point. You know, they're, they're both authentic experiences. That's just more, you know, I think that's just more, you know, developer geek them because we, we you know, there's certain trade-offs that developers are going to argue to the end of time and Emacs and Vim are the personification of those trade-offs. You know, and that, frankly, that those trade-offs that they advocate, you could show up in, you know, uh, distributed computing platforms or, you know, or, you know, uh, a blockchain architecture, you pick, pick, pick a domain, it doesn't matter, those, those same sort of problem, you know, problems, you know, materialize in other ways. I think Emacs and Vim just uh, are just an easy way for developers to get those arguments out of the table. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I guess we're seeing everything from REST to GraphQL, you know, no SQL to SQL, you know, always have to have a debate, right? They always have to have a debate, yeah. Wouldn't be fun otherwise. So, so where does this take us in a couple of years with all the no-code, low-code solutions out there? Does that mean developer experience is different? Is it changing? Will it look the same as today? Um, well, um, uh, I think the developer, I think that, I think we're going to see a replatforming of developer tools over the next decade or two for, for a couple of fundamental reasons. Um, but that's, that's not driven by uh, low code. I think, I think, you know, the low code, no code, um, enthusiasm is really just, uh, solutions unlocking the ability for both developers and non-developers to build a class of applications that they couldn't build before. You know, if you, if you, if you need to actually sling and write code and go through a whole, you know, a life cycle tooling process, you know, th the application has to be something really special for you to invest all that time and energy to build it that way. Um, so there was just over the past 30 or 40 years, there's just a whole category of applications that people really wish they could build. They just couldn't afford to do it because it was too costly to do it the, with a code structure on that. And you just don't need the power and control that, that writing it with code is. So I think now, you know, low code systems um, enable you to unlock those class of applications. And as a result, it allows more people to do application development because um, uh, they don't have to have the same skill set. So I think that that's there, and we're we're able to see those systems because there's just now so many APIs, and those APIs are pluggable, and so they're reusable, and and so these these systems can really make it easy to wire those things together. Um, in terms of the developer experience, uh, uh, over over the past fifty or sixty years, the DevOps community has gone through massive waves of bundling and unbundling, and it takes about roughly fifteen years per wave on that, and you know. Um, uh, the, the previous 15 years was a massive unbundling effort, and, and the unbundling um, happened, uh, you know, on, the, on a paradigm shift. And the paradigm shift here was the introduction of Git in 2005. Um, you know, it, it, Git turned everything into distributed version control, and so really the whole tool chain has been reinvented, you know, along those concepts. And we've gotten lots of individual silos. Um, we're now starting to see evidence that there's going to be a great rebundling uh, of all that. 
um, you know, Git, GitLab is a highly opinionated single platform that really tries to, you know, you, you know, offer offer a consistent workflow. You know, Git, GitHub is increasingly, you know, expanding from the left into the right to to provide one stop shop of tool sets. Um, and and even vendors like JFrog and and um, Docker, you know, because they are um, kind of you know systems of record for all the dependencies that you need to work with. You know, they they can build really tight integrated. Um, Broad-reaching workflows that you know uh, uh, bundle things together. So I think we're we're on this path of this massive bundling, um, and and then we'll go through another um, unbundling exercise in maybe maybe five to ten years, probably driven by edge, um, where where the the edge you know the idea of building applications on the edge is just um, all developers are going to have to understand a form of of eventual consistency that's just not they just don't have to worry about in cloud computing architectures. And, and I think most of the tools and systems that we have today are really not well suited for that. And so there'll be probably be a rethink uh, again on that front. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see the next few years here. We're already seeing quite a few different folks, uh, you know, leverage stuff like most of in the edge with Cloudflare workers and a lot of other stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's still just the beginning days. Um, speaking of APIs a little more, you know, and, and the unbundling of things, there's a lot of tooling right now in the API space from a focus on developers to, to security, to analytics, to, to the, deployment of APIs, you know, how, how do you see APIs and the way you work with them change over the next five years? Uh, well, you know, uh, it, you know, the, the nice thing is, is I think, you know, on a technical level, APIs are supporting more protocols. Um, a lot of APIs are uh, building in real-time streaming mechanisms, as, you know, to get away from just the old request response mechanism. Um, they're all going to be asynchronous. So you get, um, uh, it allows APIs to perform better. There's going to be a lot more richer data that you can extract, you know, when you're interacting with those APIs, um, uh, and and that'll enable, you know, kind of a, a much richer, richer types of consumer-based applications that can be built with them. That's 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 one of technical trends. Something something that we're going to see. Um, this, the second is, you know, we're 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 seeing a lot of businesses which are becoming API-first businesses, which is um, they're they're disrupting, you know, brick and mortar. Um, systems and and they're doing it by just building a really rich API. You know, wh while we're talking about this, I think you know something like GameStop is up four hundred percent, or you know <laughs> today. You know, so all the Wall Street, all the Wall Street bets crowd, have, you know, they they bought all these out of. You know, it's really it's really phenomenal because this company is losing money hand over fist. It's you know it's a brick and mortar that is selling games that you know you, you don't need to go and physically buy anymore. You can go to websites and download these things. Um, so by all means, you know, there's this, you know, massive short experience, but all that's happened is, is that, you know, there's been a new investors that have come in and they said, well, you know, we're going to turn GameStop into a global one-stop shopping, you know, video game, you know, digital delivery. So it's been digitally transformed now. And now, now it's a software company. It's not a brick and mortar, you know, sales stop. And, and lo and behold, look at the, the stock is going through the roof over the, the mania of that. But, but, you know, I mentioned all that because, you know, what they're talking about doing is designing a set of APIs for interacting with games, you know, the distribution of games, and, and then they're going to retool the business in and around that. And so there you go on that front. So I think we'll see, you know, more APIs that are just disrupting these brick and mortar businesses. Um, I worry um, about whether startups can do a great job if we haven't, you know, you, you know a startup, unfortunately, is going to have to find such a niche area of API uh, to deliver. Um, and, and they're going to have to deliver such a phenomenal experience that enables a, an app developer to just be way better. 
because we're now starting like in communications, financials, um, content, we've got some mega vendors in the API space and the mega vendors have worked really hard to simplify the API and do the integrations and because they're buying in bulk, they give you relatively cheap rates. And so, so I think it's, it, you know, it's, it's going to be hard for certain types of small startups to compete in, in similar areas. They're going to have to find, find new areas where API innovation hasn't happened yet. Does this mean like things like vertical SaaS, I guess you're going to have these vertical APIs or, or where do you see the next generation of API for startups going? I think almost all of them are going to be some sort of vertical, vertical based, you know, um, a APIs because it's the only, that, that's where the disruptions need to take place is in old, old legacy business processes that, that haven't been automated, that can be automated. And, and the API is just a simplification, you know, it, behind the scenes, it's doing the automation, but it's just the API interface is just a simplification of that process that's there. I'm just waiting to hear the, the jingle. If there's an API for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. It's probably not far for that, for that yeah. at this point. Yeah. You know, speaking of like these API for startups though, you know, some huge news came out last week around the uh, Plaid uh, acquisition uh, and yeah. the regulatory side. Um, how yeah. is that going to impact, you know, FinTech APIs and the overall API ecosystem? Oh, it's, it's, it's gonna, it's, we're, we're back to the wall street bet scenario here. You know, I, I think that the, 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 the Plaid, I, I think that the, public face of what we heard, you know, that it was a regulatory issue was a story of convenience on that. Um, because frankly, the, you know, it had taken, it had taken so long, six to nine months, um, that the deal, the $5 billion with the growth that they've had makes it just look too cheap at this point in time. So I think all, all things being equal, I think that the, the Plaid investors and the Plaid founders were looking for a way to get out of that deal that the company may very well be worth 10, 10 or 15 billion at this point on this point. So, so I think that, you know, uh, their, their value hasn't been diminished at all. I, I think it just reinforces how, how important these things are. And it's, you know, just going to keep, you know, fueling the fire on others in this oh, space. That's a really good point, especially around uh, just how that valuation changes so quickly for these API first companies. Yeah, they grew, uh, they grew 50 or 60%. And, and in this day and age with the you know, multiple expansion, they probably doubled their value, you know, so you, you might, you might've had a lot of buyers remorse sitting around the table, you know, at the time thinking $5 billion is great. You know, we're going to, we're going to be, you know, worth a billion dollars, but then, and then you realize, but geez, you know, we're actually worth 10. What do you do with that? The, the Plaid CEO actually uh, released a really interesting article around building an API first company, how sometimes it might take a little while to get things going because of the integration component. But once you are integrated, uh, it's just exponential growth, you know, right after. Um, does that mean founders should be looking at different things in terms of growth as an API first company versus a more traditional enterprise uh, sales company? I, I think uh, the, the nice thing about building an API business is that you can measure engagement really clearly. If people are using your API and they, and they use it more often, um, then you've done something right. But if they use it and abandon it, then something's not right. You've got, you've got more work to do, right? Either the interface isn't there they, they didn't understand how to use it or you're not providing enough value through the integrations that you're doing behind the scenes. Well, what if there's no interface? What, what do you measure then? <laughs> Just the API. <laughs> well, you know, look, the, 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 if it, you're, you're obviously metering the API. Your goal is to monetize that probably, it, you know, and so, you know, the number of applications that are making use of that and ultimately paying you something is a great barometer for how, how effective the API is on that front. Well, that's a really good point around metering the API. And then when it comes to billing, you know, we've seen this huge trend over the last couple of years towards this pay-as-you-go model. You know, a lot of yeah. it was driven from AWS Lambda. We've seen yeah. Algolia move towards this. You know, where do you think billing is going in the future when it comes to these API-first companies? 
Um, I think the there's a lot of talk about the pay-as-you-go model, but I think that that, that you know, um, at scale, when you, when you look at the businesses who are really generating a lot of money over APIs, they're not, you know, no, none of their none of their large customers are actually paying as they go. They they work in you know contracts, um, you know, that force them to buy a minimum amount of consumption, but also you know also prevents you know uh, burst burst billing or you know um, un, unplanned unplanned consumption and whatnot. So it kind of bounds it. And that's you know, and that's in the the API company's interest because they want to have predictability on the revenue that they're going to get. And the buyer the buyer doesn't want to you know end up overpaying because you know they had some rogue developer go to town on on something that way. So I think I think the uh, pay as you go is great as a great way to get um, developers started. It's a great way for people to you know find affinity for the service that you've got. Um, but but once you start to have a real community and it's really starting to grow, you know, you 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 have a tendency to turn over a lot of those things into contractualized relationships, um, um, and and that's the natural evolution of things. No, that's a really good point, especially when we think about these developer-first companies. You, in some ways, you're 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 selling to the developers first, try to get them integrated, but you still have an enterprise sales process you still have to run, right? It's that's almost right. two companies at the same time. At the same time, yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's uh, um, uh, you know, you can get you can get a lot of traction in the meantime, and you know, and then you know, when it's time for you to scale your business, then you then you think about doing those sorts of sorts of things that are appropriate for scaling your business on that. Definitely. Well, cool. Really appreciate having you here, Tyler. Today, um, anything else you would like to add for our listeners? No, thank you for having me. This was great. Cool. Well, thank you very much.